This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Festival. People often move to Seattle in hopes that they can create something entirely new here. It's a place of high utopian ideals. But the baggage comes with you. The baggage comes with you in the wagon train. It comes with you on the ship. It comes with you on the train. It comes with you on the jet. Mm-hmm. And it may not be... You may not be bringing your particular baggage, but other people are bringing their baggage. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're talking about the Caton Revels family, an influential black family who made a mark on Seattle during a moment of hope in the post-Reconstruction era. And their legacy continues to this day. But the racist backlash they faced, it was emblematic of the pro-South white supremacist narratives of the early 20th century in Seattle and across the country. If you haven't already seen the video, there's a lot there. We suggest you stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit. Horace Caton Sr. was a young black man, enslaved at birth, who with freedom got an education and came west to seek his fortune in the late 19th century. He got a job at the Seattle PI, but eventually decided to start his own newspaper, which he did in 1894. I'm just curious to ask the first question, which is, what made you choose this topic for uh, an episode of Mossback's Northwest this season? What kind of launched you into this one? I, well, I've been interested in in uh, the Caton family for a while. Uh, I'd read about them. I had, you know, Horace Caton published a newspaper called the Seattle Republican, and it was really interesting. It started in the 1890s, lasted until right around World War One, and uh, one of the interesting things about it was uh, it was a great little newspaper. And I came across it while doing historical research. I began reading. It's almost blog-like. Um, it's a combination of news, but also kind of a running commentary on Seattle's culture. Mm-hmm. It wasn't aimed at the black community. It was aimed at a general audience and uh, kind of Teddy Roosevelt progressive era. Mm-hmm. And it had a lot of advertisers that were white businesses. He had uh, some political influence in the Republican Party, was one of the few black men who was kind of allowed into the inner sanctum of Republican politics uh, through his influential newspaper, mm-hmm. which was mostly read by a white audience. The African-American community was very small in the late 19th century here. Mm-hmm. Well, then last year in uh, 2021, a group of activists got together to get Horace Caton and his wife, Susie Revels Caton, their house listed as a city landmark. And they did a ton of research. They put together an application. The people who own the house, which is a a Victorian home, modest Victorian home on Capitol Hill, and uh, it's a rental house. The people who own it rent it out. But it's in remarkably good condition. I mean, Mm -hmm. All of the major features inside and out are in place from the time that the Catons lived there. Mm -hmm. And this was a place that 
very few people of color were living in this part of Capitol Hill. It's just just down the street, a couple of blocks uh, south of Millionaire's Row. You know, it was a very respectable upper middle class home. And the Catons lived there for a while. House was in great condition. And people just kind of rallied together and it became a city landmark. And so the the historical landmark, I mean, this house where they lived at the turn of the 20th century, <clears throat> the family, it became a historical landmark just last year. It sounds like it was outside of the family for a long time. So it, it's, but yes, it was. What changes when it becomes a historical landmark in Seattle? Yeah, well, it depends on um, what the landmark commission decides to protect. Hmm. So it depends on the sort of architectural integrity and th- that kind of thing. And this is a pretty fully protected house, uh, particularly since the owners wanted to protect it. They bought it uh, some years ago, hmm. not knowing the connection with the Caton family at all. But it was a remarkable little house, kind of a survivor on a street that has lots of different eras of buildings and homes on it. And uh, I guess one time they were up in the attic and they came across all these papers about a man named Hiram Revels. Well, Hiram Revels was one of the most important figures in Reconstruction. Yeah. He was uh, a Southern uh, senator. He was the first black man elected to Congress. He, yeah. he replaced, essentially... Jefferson Davis as a senator from (laughs) Mississippi. And uh, he was a preacher. He was highly respected. He um, well-educated. And uh, his daughter, Susan Revels, married Horace Caton. They met in the South. Uh, Horace Caton came out to Seattle to work for the Seattle PI to get work in the newspaper business here and eventually married Susie, who came out, and they ran the newspaper together. Was the paper, the Seattle Republican, the paper that Horace Caton started, was that the first black-owned paper in Seattle? I don't think it was. Um, In that era Mm. that the Seattle Republican was running, there were a number of so-called black newspapers that kind of came and went. Mm. It was one of the most enduring at that time, during that time period. A secret of their success was this large crossover audience. Mm -hmm. You know, they were appealing to white readers. Seattle was majority white. Mm -hmm. The black population was very small in 1890. It was maybe around a thousand people. Yeah, it, 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 they, he was able to sustain it with advertising from all kinds of businesses, many of whom later on would not have advertised in a so-called black newspaper. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in this, this, this window of time in the 1890s, that kind of thing, I guess, was, you know, it happened. It flourished for a period of time. It, it was just, you know, it, it was like this, this moment of hope, you know, sort of post-Civil um, War. There's this sort of window of time when things seem to be, you got a little bit more political representation across the country. You got, you know, a little bit more entrepreneurship. You know, sort of these things were just starting to happen. People were starting to be able to be integrated as free human beings into uh, society. And so that is kind of, on some level, that's that's one of the central questions of the video that um, the team produced. Here is a family of incredibly talented, entrepreneurial, successful people who 
kind of, yeah, made a name for themselves and did really well in Seattle and things were going well for them and then they were not. And it, and, and the forces that caused that um, were bigger than, than them and, 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 and sort of the window of time that that change happened was was really quite small. So, so what changed is kind of the central question. In terms of the Caton specifically, um, you know, I've talked to Dr. Quintard Taylor, who's, you know, retired professor of the University of Washington, wrote the history of the black community in Seattle. He's the founder of BlackPast.org. He knows this inside and out. And I, I asked him about kind of what happened to the Catons. He, he says, you know, there were a couple of things. One was that when Horace began writing more about lynchings mm-hmm. in the South, this was something the, the, that white audience did not want to read about. They did not want to read an attack on lynchers. They didn't want to read about the bad things that were happening in Alabama and Mississippi. You know, and Horace felt a moral obligation to call this stuff out. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about, you know, I mean, Seattle in uh, Washington uh, state, you know, there were lynchings going on. They weren't in the black community, but there were lynchings going on well into the early 20th century. There were still people being lynched at county courthouses like in Koufax, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Washington back in in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And but wow. when when Horace was coming out, about the lynchings, the racial lynchings that were going on in the South, people went to this thing, well, he's he's actually trying to protect people who rape women. He's trying to, you know, he's trying to protect. And so it got twisted into this thing where, you know, being against lynching was the bad thing. Oh. And oh, so, it's so horrible because it's just like it's just a made up lie. I mean, that's what that was the justification for lynching was this 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 idea that, oh, well, you know, these people are rapists. I mean, that I mean, there's almost no evidence for any of that ever. Right. You know? I mean, no, the attitude was, <laughs> you know, if if white people say so, it must be true. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, our history with lynching often affected, you know, in the West, certainly Chinese. Mm-hmm. It affected Native Americans. I mean, there was some, you know, the U.S. military in the 1850s, they would lynch, you know, in these semi-official chief Leshi was essentially lynched, oh. illegal lynching. So, you know, this kind of frontier justice thing had happened, so which I think made people, you know, in some sense defensive of the idea. But I think there was also this racial attitude of like, well, the white people down south are right. Well, why would you think that? Well... Because a lot of people moving into this area were from South and border states, former slave states. Mm. But mm-hmm. there was also an active post-war PR campaign mm. telling yeah. people that Reconstruction was a disaster because it didn't protect whites against black people. And black people were running wild and doing all these terrible things to white people. And this was a narrative that was growing and growing. And so then when you get to a period in the early 20th century in Seattle, where, so when Horace Caton got to town, there were only about roughly a thousand black people in the city. Mm-hmm. By 1910, that had doubled, more than doubled. Mm-hmm. And this this was consistent with what was happening in other parts of the country, where there's a migration out of the Jim Crow South into northern cities, mm-hmm. and in a, in a much lesser way, western cities. 
But one of the things that the local white population here had to contend with was a growing black population, mm. which was steadily funneled into fewer and fewer neighborhoods in Seattle. Mm. So you had the beginning of a kind of, well, not a kind of, you had a beginning of, of real segregation happening so that uh, people like the Catons, you know, had to be prevented from living on a place like Capitol Hill. So you think that segregation, was it written into law right away? Or at what point did the the law start to um, articulate no, that? No, it was cultural at first. Okay. And, I mean, I think when, when, when Horace got here in the 1890s, he could eat in white restaurants, mm-hmm. you know, so-called white mm-hmm. restaurants. Mm-hmm. He could eat anywhere he wanted, just like anybody else. Yeah. Sometime in the in that period around 1908, 1909, whites only signs began going up. Mm. You know, you have a period and he he protested that, you know, he objected to that. He went into restaurants, uh, you know, and insisted on being served and that kind of thing. But there was a growing the the tenor of life had really shifted sometime in that in that period. So you had a growing black population. You had this discomfort with the idea that lynching might be wrong. And, you know, I mean, it's also fair to say that Horace made some people mad just personally, you know, with his editorial opinions. And um, he had some political disputes with people who were fairly powerful. He lost some of his influence mm. by speaking up. There were some divided opinions about about him in, in the black community itself. He wasn't universally beloved. Mm-hmm. But I think I think we can kind of begin to to sort of see more clearly how the white community's attitudes shifted, mm-hmm. which track very much with the chronology of what happened to the Caton family in terms of their early success and then meeting these racial barriers that that they they didn't expect. Mm-hmm. and essentially a kind of financial ruin as a result. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back. Support for the Mossback podcast comes from the Crosscut Festival, happening online and in Seattle May 4th through the 7th. Join us in celebrating bold ideas for a changing world at our biggest event of the year. Featuring fireside conversations, panels, live podcast recordings, workshops, and special events that explore forward thinking in politics, social justice, the environment, history, innovation, and more. Spend your week with the community of the curious at the Crosscut Festival this spring. More information at crosscut.com festival. Mid-1890s, launches the paper. It does really well for, for a while. In the early 20th century is kind of when he and Susie revels, getting married and living together and living in the house and everything. And then it's just sort of once you get closer, 1908, 1909, 1910, a little bit in that time period is when Yeah, that's when begins. some of these social social changes become more apparent mm-hmm. in terms of excluding black people, that they, there's some kind of recognition that the black community needs to be 
limited mm-hmm. in terms of where they can live and where they can eat and where they can shop and that kind of thing. A kind of so it's interesting because we did an episode unrelated to any of this, I thought, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> about the Seattle freeze. A writer once described the Seattle freeze as the flip side of Seattle nice. Welcome to Seattle. Now, please go away. Oh, right. Okay. And we there was a film clip in there showing a bunch of uh, a street scene from 1940 of downtown Seattle. Mm-hmm. And... It was, uh, there was a bunch of bunting over the street, mm-hmm. red, white, and blue bunting. And uh, when we first broadcast this, uh, a viewer wrote in and said, why is there a Confederate flag flying in your episode? What's that about? Can you explain that, please? And I was like, Confederate flag? <laughs> like, what? So yeah. I went back and looked at the footage. And when we, when I got really a careful look at it, I realized that, it was taken at Fifth Avenue, looking down Fifth Avenue, and the whole street was full of Confederate bunting. Yeah. And it was uh, not necessarily, you know, the battle flag, the one that you associate as the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. There were some of those, but most of it was this red, white, and blue bunting that was based on what they call the Stars and Bars, which was the original Confederate national flag. Uh-huh. And... Um, and they changed the flag during the Civil War because people kept getting it confused with the American flag. Uh-huh. Too close. Yeah. So I'm looking at this image, and you can see that there's a line of people on the sidewalk. It's clearly not the 4th of July. We thought, well, is this a parade? Is this a, you know, what is? But it looked like winter. People were wearing coats. The weather was nice, but people are clearly dressed up. So I began to research what it was. Well, it turns out the footage was uh, some amateur photographer with a color film wow. in 1940, January 1940, took pictures of the opening of Gone with the Wind, mm. the, the, the movie Gone with the Wind. And they had decorated Fifth Avenue with uh, all this co- Confederate flags celebrating this movie. And I thought, well... Okay, now I know like what what they're doing there. I finally found one reference in the PI to the flags. And it, you know, it basically was just a little pa- passing thing that said, you know, 5th Avenue was festooned with the old stars and bars at the opening of Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. And but I I was just struck by the fact that nobody tore them down, nobody protested, nobody objected, nobody was picketing the theater. It was mm-hmm. like they were just, hey, yeah, the Confederacy, go. So I began looking through newspapers. And, you know, in the 1930s and early 40s, before World War II, um, the Daughters of the Confederacy was a really strong civic organization in Seattle. Their mm. events were always in the newspaper. They would celebrate Jefferson Davis's or Robert E. Lee's birthday up at the Lake View Cemetery where there was a Confederate monument. Oh. There, were, uh, there was an old Confederate veteran who was still alive who they would trot out at these events. There was a kind of nostalgia for the Old South, the idea that, which Gone with the Wind embodies, which is, oh, this era of ball gowns and beauty and the, anti, uh, the antebellum elegance and everything. And mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so I read, you know, the reviews, the local reviews, and they were all just glowing. You know, hmm. God with the wind's the greatest thing. And there were other articles in the paper and other events in the paper, uh, you know, that that would barely, if, if at all, pass muster today in terms of how people you know, view, view the South. Mm-hmm. And so I began just to kind of track this back. In 1908, there, well, there was a, was a book published before 1908 by Thomas Dixon called The Klansman. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially a, a romance of Reconstruction that places the Ku Klux Klan as the, the, the knights that saved civilization mm-hmm. and put down uh, Reconstruction. You know, it's it's this, you know, incredibly racist (laughs) book. It was um, protested at the time. People objected to it who read it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there was was a lot of fear of writing too much about it because uh, they didn't want people to go buy it. You know, Mm, here's a controversial book. Right. But well, it, it same was conversation today. I think about white, white supremacy. You sort of you wonder, you know, it's like, I want to know what's going on there. But if we interview these people, then we're going to let them say their piece. And we don't, <laughs> you know, is that is that problematic anyway? Yeah. No, yeah. no. That's and uh, and so that then they made a stage play out of it. And the stage play toured the country. The Klansmen appeared in all these different cities. And in 1908, it was on stage at the Moore Theater in Seattle wow. and with Klansmen in full regalia. Uh, with no black actors, all the, it was blackface for the black characters, oh. whites with blackface. So I looked at the reviews, mm-hmm. and you know the reviews were mostly positive. I mean, the, the newspapers carried ads and whatnot for this play. They described the play. There are minstrels in it. The only newspaper that didn't review it was the Seattle Times. Huh. And after it left town, the Seattle Times drama department wrote an editorial, basically a column, saying, we didn't review this play because it's despicable. They objected to it. Mm-hmm. And, and the Seattle it, Republican, I imagine, similarly? or Yeah, well, you know, Horace Caton felt in an awkward position, you know, because he didn't want to generate uh, publicity for this play. So he acknowledged it was very objectionable, but he he didn't want a big deal made out of it because he thought that would sell tickets. Yeah, yeah. Um, the black community wanted to sue to stop it appearing at the Moore Theater, hmm. but they had to raise like a thousand dollar bond in order to be able to take their issue to court, and they they couldn't raise the money. Wow. And there were other people in the you know powerful people in the white community who wanted to prevent that lawsuit. And the police basically said anybody that comes to protest this is going to get dealt with. Fast forward, 1915, The Klansman is turned into a film, Mm. a movie, the first big extravaganza movie, Birth of a Nation, Mm. D.W. Griffith. Birth of a Nation comes to town in 1915, and it's a huge hit all across the country. People are flocking to it. It's... Every bit as bad as the Klansmen. In fact, it is the Klansmen and other Dixon writings kind of morphed into this big story. The Klan are the heroes that ride to the rescue, um, you know, saving white womanhood, uh, saving the white race. Here locally, Seattle, there's no negative reviews. There's virtually nothing. Wow. 
including in the Seattle Times. Yeah, they wrote a very glowing review of Bert. How, how something said something to the effect of how anybody could object to this, we don't understand. It's very accurate historically. <laughs> what? Oh no. So the narrative of people sort of objecting to this southern narrative in 1908 has completely vanished mm-hmm. in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Has completely vanished by 1915. Yeah. So so something shifted in that period. Then you fast forward to 1940 with Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. And there there were objections to Gone with the Wind because essentially it's just a warmed over version of Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. except with, you know, more more glamour. Some people, if you look at, uh, you know, black newspapers at the time, there was objections to it. There were other people who said, well, it's too late to object to it because they've already it's already underway, but at least they're using some black actors. You know, it, they mm-hmm. moved from blackface to actual. But I mean, it, you know, it's a, it's a movie that, you know, is very racist and mm-hmm. very revisionist in, in the sort of story that it's telling about the romance of, of, the, of the South. Mm-hmm. That's why people could see a Confederate flag flying in downtown Seattle and, it's uh, it, it's more of a cultural symbol. It's also interesting because I think the Klansman as a stage play was very influential. Uh, I think it was Horace Caton that said, you know, I, I wish it had stayed a book because not that many people would have seen it, but they're going to see the play and that's going to be more more influential. So it's even more important to marginalize it. Mm-hmm. Birth of a Nation in 1915 is blowing people's minds partly because it's it's cinema right it's it's big screen modern cinema in a way that people haven't seen before so it's message whatever it is is just bowling people over and so after birth of a nation that's when you see the rejuvenation of the clan mm-hmm. and then in the 1920s the Ku Klux Klan revival was really strong on the west coast and really strong in Oregon and Washington Oh. And you know you can you can go online and find pictures of big clan balls and big clan events and cross burnings that took place in the Seattle area. Wow! Um, and so, in some ways, Birth of a Nation sort of burst out and permitted the mainstreaming of this culture, which previously had been looked down upon as, um, you know, well the clan is bad and. You know, after the war, they were suppressed, but now it's full flower time. I mean, I guess you've already kind of answered this, but one sort of big picture, I guess, you know, one thing that we were talking about, I think, uh, some time ago when we were talking about uh, launching this podcast and also, in general, sort of how you approach history or why you think history is important or what interests you about history. And this, and we started this conversation as well about we, with your expressing this feeling that this story of Horace Caton and the Caton Rebels family should be more mainstream than it is. It isn't necessarily packaged in the history of every history of Seattle. What what do you think what do you think this story teaches us 
Well, I think I <laughs> that's a good question. I think it teaches us that there isn't there aren't just one or two narratives in history. Mm-hmm. There is a multiplicity of narratives. And that our history is our that our history itself is very segregated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That and that it's incumbent on me and it's incumbent on other people who are interested in history to try to try to tell Fuller's stories that pull in uh, narratives that have been marginalized or overlooked or actively suppressed. You know, active. I mean, we actively forget stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> covered mm-hmm. up. Um, yeah. And sometimes yeah. that's that's a bigger kind of cultural reaction to something. And sometimes it's just very intentional. I'm just not going to tell people about the bad things I did. <laughs> I think his historians in general are understanding this more and more histories are coming out that are telling these stories, but the, it's always a trick to begin to try to integrate those into, into what we know, <laughs> you know, like, what does it, what does it mean? Yeah. And yeah. to me, one of the things I've tried to do, not all the time, but in some of the things I've done, is try to bring some of those threads to um, a mainstream audience mm-hmm. that isn't going to get them from uh, the traditional things and look at it differently. I just think we can't change the past, mm-hmm. but one thing we can do is we can know it yeah. better. And uh, you can't write every story you can't tell you know everything but some things you know really stick out and I I honestly think one of the reasons I was drawn to the Caton story was because I think it's important to know that there was that moment of hope mm-hmm. and maybe maybe it was foolish but but it it reflected um it reflected something important about how people saw opportunity here. Mm-hmm. And it's important to know that it was thwarted. Yeah. For complicated reasons. I mean, there was a lot going on, you know, as there are in our times. Right. And I, I just think I think that's something it's important to know about and, and more people should know about it. And the Caton House itself is an opportunity to to tell that story to say here's a landmark and its main importance is who lived here and what they experienced listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Cover art by Greg Cohen. And many thanks to engineer Resty Bacall for building out an amazing COVID-friendly audio studio. If you'd like to check out more videos from the five seasons of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. And if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, go to crosscut.com membership. 
In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to KCTS9's on-demand programming and a subscription to the Mossback Den newsletter, where Knut shares even more Pacific Northwest history. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard, and we'll be back soon with another episode.